stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shidem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before him, the, the exalted God? Shall I come before with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were by noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Great to be with you all today. Um, it is a special day. We are in this season, this fourth, fourth week of uh, Epiphany. Um, I was thinking this week about the Christian life. The Christian life is tricky in a lot of ways because as much as like we're formed on a regular basis by God's spirit and we trust in our baptismal identity and who we are, like we go astray a lot. Like we, we make choices that are counter to our baptismal identity. We, we sin, we, we chase after other things. And we're people who have set our face. Christians are people who have set our face in the way of Jesus. And yet it's very quickly we find ourselves serving something else or losing our footing as Christians. In The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says to Frodo this statement. He says, it is dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. That's kind of how we feel, I think, a lot in life. I, sometimes I start my day, and I'm doing really good. Like, usually most days when my alarm goes off and I start to get ready, I, I'm doing pretty good following Jesus at that point, right? <laughs> like, like, at that point, I'm like, I'm ready to go, you know. I, I do morning prayer in the morning, and I'm kind of like ready to go. I, you know, start my coffee and all that stuff. But it's not too long before I find myself being selfish, lacking trust in God, or trusting in the wrong thing. I wonder if that might be true for all of us. Um, I've tried this discipline lately in my life of making sure that I say my morning prayers before I do any work. And that is really hard for me um, because I want to, a lot of times I wake up with lots of thoughts of an email that I need to respond to or some of you that I wanna check in on <laughs> and see how you're doing or some research that I wanna get ahead on. And I've tried to discipline myself to say, no, before I do anything, I'm gonna try to do this. And um, that's challenging for me. And on my not-so-good days, I think the reason why, I was wondering why it's so hard for me, and on my not-so-good days, I think that I run the world, <laughs> that, that I'm the one who can fix all the problems. <laughs> I, I would never tell myself that. I would never say that out loud, but there is this sense in me that if I don't do these things, if I don't rush to these things, then they're not going to happen. Um, what happens when I find myself lost? What happens with us when we find ourselves serving other things or trusting in ourselves rather than trusting God? Well, there's good news in this. The good news is as we go along the road, as we go along life, God is always revealing himself to us. He's always challenging us. He's always surprising us. He's always upending us. So I was thinking about this statement in the Lord of the Rings of how we don't lose our footing. We keep our feet uh, firm and keep them headed where they're going. Now, that doesn't mean that our feet are fixed, like they're stuck in concrete. No, we're moving forward, but we're trusting there's a trajectory to where we're headed, that we can trust God, and that God shows up on our journey, ever comforting and ever challenging us. In our Micah passage that Sarah read, Micah was one of Israel's great prophets, okay? And he does what really good prophets do. 
okay? He challenges the people of God and he warns them of coming judgment. He said, if you keep heading in this way, this disaster is going to befall you and he calls them to wake up. Here it says that the Lord has, I love the way it's phrased, the Lord had a controversy with the people. There's a controversy that the Lord has because of their behavior. Why? Well, because God's people here are a mess. The leaders in this context have become corrupt and they become wealthy through their corruption. The prophets have served only the people who would pay them the most. Imagine that system, the prophets of God who would only serve those who paid them the most. There's actually some unfortunate modern things that happen with that as well. The leaders and prophets are stewarding the land through bribery only for the wealthy. They've taken away the land of the poor, which was against the Torah. So God gave the people of God land, right? And each family had land and you couldn't take the family's land away from them. But here in this passage, the leaders are doing that. They're taking away the land of the poor and giving it to the rich. So Micah says disaster is coming for them. But at the end of each section of his book, when he's called them out, he says disaster is coming. There's always hope at the end of each section because God is never, if you read the Bible, God is never content to leave Israel in their place, in their place of brokenness and, never, and sin. He's always there to rescue them. And I think this is true for us as well. Though our sin leads to disaster, God is not content for us to remain there. There is always rescue, always. And somehow, this is an interesting quirk of this story. Somehow, like God, through the prophet, is telling of all the bad things that Israel's done, and he says it to the mountains. <laughs> so the mountains are, he says, hear, O mountains. It's kind of like the mountains or creation are like the judge here. And God is arguing a case. Hear the mountains, you controversy. We don't really talk like that, do we? Right? We, we don't really talk to the mountains. Hear, oh tree, such and such hurt my feelings. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say that, right? There's something in this, and it tells us something. Much of sinfulness, much of what it means to miss the mark, is really our failure to live out who God has created us to be in the first place. God created human beings to reflect God's image and to steward or to take care of the world. That's what we were called to do from the very, very beginning. Reflect God's image and then steward or care for the world. So think about it this way when you think about sin. Selfishness is turning inwards and forgetting the call to bless, okay? It's focusing only on ourselves and not on those who were called to bless. So I think about the old C.S. Lewis quote that, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? That humility is not, oh man, I'm a crappy person. You know, I'm, I'm horrible, I'm awful. No, humility is recognizing I exist to bless the world, right? It's not all about me. The world doesn't just revolve around me. It's true not just for selfishness, but think about greed, the sin of greed. Greed is hoarding resources without allowing the world and the resources to replenish themselves and not allowing others to participate in that blessing. All of the things that we do that are sinful are living out of harmony with the creative, created order, how God has created us to be. But this is an odd way of speaking, talking to the mountains, but it reminds us that all sin has consequence outside just the consequence for us as individuals. 
that sin grows, that it affects other people, it affects other things. And God's heart is that we would flourish and the world would flourish, and he knows that the best way to do that is to be who God has called us to be. So anytime God confronts people's behavior in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's not out of a shame sense, like, oh, you're so bad, you're so awful, stop it. It's no, remember who I called you to be. Remember this mission that I have for you to be, and that's the best way for flourishing and life and health and for others and for the world and everything is if you are who you're created to be. So God knows that what we need when we go off track. We need to be reminded of who we are. So that's why in this Micah passage, God does that for them. He reminds them, hey, I was the one who brought you out of Egypt. Do you remember that? I remember, I am the one who created that story for you. I rescued you. That's who you are. You are a delivered people, but you're not living like a delivered people. So the people respond in this really interesting way. So, so the prophet's calling them out. Like, you've done all this stuff. Like, you need to live differently. You need to live who you've, as who you've called to be. And the people respond with, well, well what should I give to the Lord? What's, what am I supposed to do? Like, what am I supposed to give to God? And they list just a bunch of sacrifices, okay? Some are more extreme than others. So it reminds me of, like, a teenager like, and I think I probably did this as a teenager, but when you get real frustrated with your parents, your parents say something to you and go to your room, blah, 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 blah. And then there's just this extreme statement like, fine, I'm just going to stay in my room forever. Is that going to make you happy? Right? I'm just going to stay there forever. I'm never, ever going to hang out with my friends again. Right? Is, that, is that really what you want? Is that fine? That's kind of what Israel does. They say, what should we give to God? Burn offerings? Calves? How about a thousand rams? You want a thousand rams? We'll give you a thousand rams. How about that? How about I give you, they say 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Fine, I'm gonna give you 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Will that make us square? Will that make us even? How about my firstborn, it says. That's the most extreme one, right? In fact, interesting note there, because if you remember the story of their deliverance in Egypt, their firstborns were saved by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, right? So they're saying, should we go back to that and just let the angel of death take away the firstborn? Is that what you want? They're going more and more extreme, right? But think about it. As parents, we send our kids to their room (laughs) when they disobey so that they can calm down and refocus. Not because we need them to have room time in order to make us square, right? It's they need that time to refocus and to process. We don't want them in their room forever. We want them to be properly oriented. And we know that there's a particular way for them to do that. And it's to think about who they are and who they've been called to be. God is not concerned with his people making one declarative act to fix their sin, like they're trying to do with these sacrifices. Instead, here's what God says. Here's what I require of you. Do justice love mercy, walk humbly. These things are not like quick fixes. They're matters of reorientation of the heart. I want your heart reoriented so that you live as who you've been called to be. The children of Israel are looking for one magical sacrifice or event that will fix everything. They're looking for a dramatic action, even as much as giving their own firstborn in order to please God. That's how it worked with the pagan gods, that if you just gave enough sacrifice, then that made you kind of square or even. But our God wants our whole lives, everything. 
God is interested in their lives changing because he knows that's what's best for them and for us. He wants them to live as the people they've been called to be. Now, sometimes we read this passage and we think it's anti-ritual. So we go, okay, well, yeah, those sacrifices, that ritual sacrifice, God was never interested in that. God only wants our heart. That is um, uh, ritualistic legalism. Um, but, But think about it. God gave them these rituals. He gave them these rituals that they were supposed to practice. He told them to do it. It's not that he's against the rituals themselves, but the rituals that God gives his people are never intended to be a one-off thing that just buys forgiveness or acceptance or anything like that. Ritual is supposed to, it's not transactional. Ritual is something that forms us. It forms ourselves. Anything you do in your life, and you've heard me say this many times, but anything you do in your life over and over again, that thing begins to shape you over time. That's the power of ritual. Ritual is not about transaction in the Christian faith. It's not about if I do this thing, that makes me good or right or better or forgiven or accepted or anything. No, ritual is about formation. That when I do this thing over and over again, somehow I notice it begins to shape me. God already loves me. He already accepts me. He's already forgiven me. And this helps me to live into that reality. God is never interested in you earning his love or forgiveness because you can't. You can't do enough good works. You can't stay away from sin long enough to earn his love and forgiveness. He already loves you. God wants us to live now in harmony with who he's created us to be. That's his heart for us. So Micah has identified a place where the children of Israel were missing it. They needed God's judgment and God's hope in their life. In our New Testament passage, Paul does the same thing with the Corinthian church. He's continuing to address this idea, and we've talked about it the past several weeks, but this idea how the church is divided, how there's all these different groups within the church. The church has flocked to all these different teachers because they value worldly wisdom and speaking and rhetorical eloquence over anything else. Wisdom was this thing in the Greek world of the first century that was highly prized and valued. So people would go, they're looking for the person who is the most wise or has the most wisdom. But wisdom didn't just mean that you had knowledge. It also meant you were able to communicate that knowledge really, really well. So they're looking for all these teachers. Who communicates the best? Who communicates the secret to life and this inspiration and this thing? We just bought a new home. I think I may set a record here. This is the second... um, This is the second illustration I'm going to give about alarm uh, salesmen, Um, but but I think it's fitting today, right? We just bought a new home, and I was not prepared for all the door-to-door alarm system salesmen, okay? Just that wasn't a thing I was was ready for. I I didn't know that was happening. I didn't know they would knock your door all days and then try to sell you stuff, and then they'd tell you that the other guys were bad. And anyway, that happened, and we had one guy who just kept showing up over and over again, trying to get us to talk to him. He would knock musically on the, on the door. So it was this, you know, kind of thing. And, and yeah, not fun. And, and when you talk to these guys, they're really, their goal is to try to be the guy who beats the other guys. It's always guys. So I'm not being sexist here. It, it really, for our experience, it's always guys. <laughs> um, they want to put their Brinks or ATD or vector sign in your yard before the other guy does. That's what they want to do. And they're all trying to convince you that their system is, of course, way better than the other guys, right? 
So there's this sense of like those poor other guys are trying really hard, but they don't have the best thing. I have the best thing. That's what we hear from every one of these guys. This is similar to how the teachers peddled wisdom in the first century, okay? They would go and say, all those poor other teachers, they don't have the secret insight or wisdom that I have. I'm just better than everybody else. But Richard Hayes, a commentator on this passage, says that Paul says something different. The gospel is different than all of that. Hayes says, the gospel is not an esoteric body of religious knowledge, not a slickly, slickly packaged philosophy, not a scheme for living a better life. Instead, it is an announcement about God's apocalyptic intervention in the world for the sake of the world. That's the gospel. It's not trying to sell us a slickly packaged philosophy. It's not even inspiration primarily. It's an announcement that something fundamental has changed because Jesus rose from the dead. The world's a different place. The gospel is not a self-help plan. Sometimes we try to make it that way. And gosh, we could grow our church way faster if it was. If we could promise people that they are gonna have financial success and everything in their life is gonna be smooth and perfect, oh my gosh, in some way that would be great, but we can't promise those things. We can't give people a quick fix for their marriage or their emotional stability, right? So what can we do? We can proclaim that their circumstance is not all there is. It doesn't have the final word in their life. God has rescued us. God has drawn near to us. God is with us in the struggle. And this announcement divides humanity in two, Paul says. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. For the perishing person, the whole story of Jesus sounds like foolishness. Just sounds crazy, ridiculous. For those who are being saved, it's actually the power of God. It's the very power of God. Paul says that this announcement of Christ crucified is a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. Now, one of the things we have to remember when we read these passages is Paul talks about like ethnicities, like in a really casual kind of way that we just don't talk about much around here. And that's good that we don't talk about it that way. Um, but he's talking to a particular congregation with people who come from particular ethnic and religious backgrounds. And that with that brings all of this different baggage. Paul is writing this as a Jew. And he says that among the churches at the time, the Jews in the congregation demand signs. The Greeks demand wisdom. So they're demanding different things. But we proclaim Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block for the people who are looking for a sign, the Jews. And it's foolishness for the people who are just looking for slickly packaged wisdom, the Gentiles. So for us, we think about it, if you're someone who's looking only for power, for a sign, for supernatural proofs, do you know what we get with the Christian story? A crucified Messiah. How does that make sense? N.T. Wright says, the Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap in the wrong end of the empire. <laughs> wow. If you're someone who's looking for rhetorical skill or wisdom as the final word, just chasing the next inspiration, the next thing that's gonna be, gonna tickle your ears or make you excited, 
You're looking for that wrong thing because the cross will always look like foolishness to you. In verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The context of that passage is that Judah's leaders had been trusting in their pragmatic plans to protect their kingdom through military alliance rather than through listening to the prophet. So they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Paul is using this text from Isaiah to say, God talk is cheap. Anybody can just talk about God and do so in an eloquent way. The Corinthians were obsessed with wise preachers and even with ecstatic uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues. They thought that was like the final word. But the fact that they were broken apart, that this church had been fractured by all these teachers shows them that they're not following in the right direction. They're actually far from God. I just wanna say, we had a planning meeting yesterday and uh, David Wally said something that just um, really spoke to me and it was, Uh, pointed out that it's really uncommon to find a church like ours, especially a small church, that's not fractured into groups or divided. (laughs) Um, It's something that we thank God for. It's not, I don't think it's actually, I really genuinely think it's the work of the Spirit. It's not something that we have done because of our particular skills or my particular leadership skill, because I have led churches that have been fractured (laughs) and divided before, so I know that's not it. It's something about the work of the Holy Spirit that has allowed this community to be in unity. That doesn't mean we don't disagree with each other because we do. And our community has a lot of people who come from a lot of different perspectives. But somehow by the Spirit, we've been able to kind of keep that unity together. And David was pointing out in our meeting that like, that's really unusual. And we all kind of nodded and said, yeah, we haven't really been in communities that have been like that before. This is a sign of God's Spirit that there's unity, that there's presence. Now, we have lots of weaknesses as a church, (laughs) um, but unity is not one of them. And we thank God for that. The Corinthians struggled with a lack of unity because they're chasing after all the wrong things. They forgot the foolishness of the cross is central to who they are. In light of the cross, all the value systems that we have change. I think here about the modern temptations that we face. There are so many people who, when they're looking for faith, they're looking for spirituality, they're looking for a sign, a miracle, or steps to victory. I know people that have tried a church because they had this amazing sign that happened in their life, this powerful thing that happened. And as soon as that kind of began to fade and ordinary life stepped in, it was like, oh, maybe this doesn't work anymore because we're chasing after that sign. Many of the people who I encounter who do this are religious people. They're people that have come from church or grown up in church and they're looking for, they think the Christian life is all about victory. And if you think about it, if you're in a church and you think that the goal of life is victory and that the Christian life will only lead to victory, you're not gonna be real open about your struggles with other people because you're gonna go, I gotta at least pretend that victory is there all the time, (laughs) right? That happens so often. And so what Paul is saying is if that's what we're thinking, it's all about a sign, that's gonna be a stumbling block because you're going, hey, it's all about victory. It's all about conquering. And then we have this story of Jesus who died on a cross. What do you do with that? There are others in the world though that they come to spirituality looking for inspiration or something to tickle the ears. Like what's the new thing? If we're looking for the thing that's most rhetorically eloquent or intellectually eloquent, 
The cross comes in and it seems like foolishness. God uses everyday stuff, ordinary stuff, not just the eloquent stuff or the intellectual stuff. God uses the everyday stuff and everyday people. I think this is especially true in our world with some people when we go through difficulty, when we go through struggle, we're looking for somebody to come and just take that struggle away, to fix it, to just immediately make it better. But our story is the one of the God who saw us in suffering and stepped into the suffering with us. And if you think about that, I think that's actually what we want on a deeper level. We want somebody to affirm our suffering, to stand with us, to link arms with us. And healing comes through that solidarity. And when we get on the other side of this thing, we see that the cross, which is a stumbling block and a foolish thing, is actually the strongest, most powerful thing ever. And actually the foolishness of the cross is the wisest thing ever. True wisdom comes from relationship with God that leads to holy living made possible by the cross. And when we live into this new reality, when we live into this new world, it changes us. It actually begins to change situations and it begins to change the world. All right, so if the message of the cross is foolishness, what does that make Christians? <laughs> we are the foolish people. That's who we are. Embrace it. And think about what this good news is. If your good news that you're looking for is all about victory, success, and dominating, who's invited into that story? Think about it. If that's your story, everything's about success and being successful and being victorious, who's invited into that story? Successful people, <laughs> dominant people, victorious people, right? Surely not the poor, the lost, and the disenfranchised but this is good news for them. Our story is good news for them. So Paul says, if you ever doubt that this is foolishness or this story is, um, is for the least, the last, and lost, just look at yourselves, he says to the church. We're a motley crew of people, right? God has called this ragtag group of people to reflect the gospel, and that is scandalous. Paul says of the Corinthian Christians, not many of you were from noble birth. Not many of you are powerful. I love uh, Richard Hayes says, God had, has not called Caesar or persons of senatorial rank to represent the gospel in the world. Instead, he has called this motley assembly, which embraces freedmen, tradespeople, and slaves, along with a few people of higher standing but not many. But here's the good news. We don't boast in our noble birth. We don't boast in the fact that we have victory or success or are the most intellectually eloquent. We boast in the Lord. Our Matthew 5 passage is the Beatitudes, and we'll go through this quickly here, but it can be easy for us. We've all heard this before. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are this. Blessed are that. You've probably heard this if you've grown up in church or been in church at all. You've probably heard this passage a bunch of times. And it can be easy for us to read this passage and think of it as moral principles. Blessed are the poor in spirit means just be more poor in spirit, dude. Like, like just do that. Blessed are the meek means, oh gosh, I got to be more meek now. But notice this passage is not prescriptive. 
Jesus doesn't say, hey, be more merciful. He doesn't say, be more meek, be more uh, of a peacemaker. He said, blessed are the merciful. Jesus is describing what life looks like in this kingdom that he's bringing. This is what God's kingdom will look like when it comes in fullness. And this is what it looks like now when we see it breaking in our everyday lives. Jesus is proclaiming that this kingdom, this thing is happening. His kingdom is here and we are invited to look for it and to join it. But, and this is something Hannah said earlier, like this is true, it's completely true. The kingdom of God is here and we're gonna see it in fullness one day, but it doesn't look like it right now. So we look around the world, like it doesn't often look like that. Those who mourn are often uncomforted. The meek don't inherit the earth. It actually seems like the prideful inherit the earth. Those who long for justice often die still longing for justice. But something happens in the person of Jesus. The new world is starting to show up. My pastor often describes it like what happens when spring comes, which we're gonna experience pretty soon, which is fun. Um, Before spring, we see like um, daffodils popping up everywhere, right? And, and the daffodils kind of start to pop up and it's kind of the first sign of spring. So if you think about it this way, it's kind of like we're gonna see spring one day when God puts the world right, but we see signs of spring popping up all over the place. And the church is called to be the daffodil people, okay? So we live that new kingdom here and now right? We live that new sign of spring. So we go, yes, I know I live in a world where the meek don't inherit the earth, but we're going to celebrate the meek. We're going to lift up the meek. I know that we don't live in a world where the poor in spirit or those who think of themselves less and trust in God, where they don't inherit the earth, but we're going to celebrate that thing. I know that those who long for justice, they're not filled right now in this world, but we say that they will be filled and we celebrate that longing for justice. The church is the daffodil people. Of course, this does bring to light the places where our lives and the world look different from the kingdom of God. In our world, it's all upside down, but we live by a different kingdom. N.T. Wright says, in our world still, most people think that wonderful news consists of success, wealth, long life, victory in battle. Jesus is offering wonderful news for the humble, the poor, the mourners, and the peacemakers. That's his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but leaning into foolishness is hard for me. I often get swept off my feet. I often chase after other things. I look for the quick fix. God, maybe if I just do this thing for you, you'll do something for me. My life begins to look a lot like the people of Israel at times. I'm also a lot like the church at Corinth. I look for a sign. I look for victory. I chase after that shiny object that's right in front of me. But to me and for all of us, we're, we're called to hear the good news that the stories of our world are not true. We're not defined by worldly successes. There is no quick fix to restoration. God plays by a different set of rules. The message says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. 
With less of you, this is a quote from the message translation of scripture. He translates it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You are blessed when you feel like you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. I love that. May we hear this foolish, foolishless, foolishly good news today. May we receive it into our hearts and allow it to be the thing that keeps us on our feet. Amen.